MSW Media. Hey, everybody, this episode of Daily Beans is brought to you by my favorite daily nutritional drink, Athletic Greens. Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one year supply of immune supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. Just go to athleticgreens.com slash dailybeans to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. And we thank them for their support. Hello and welcome to the Daily Beans for Wednesday, February 16th, 2022. Today, the Durham investigation into the oranges of the Trump-Russia investigation is all but dead. The January 6th committee subpoenas six more people involved in the forged elector scheme. Prince Andrew and Virginia Jufri reach a settlement agreement. Sandy Hook families settle with the AR-15 manufacturer Remington. And a judge hands Trump another loss. I'm Allison Gill. And I'm Dana Goldberg. Hello, everyone. I I got a little bit of a frog in my throat today. I hope I'm not getting sick again. (laughs) No, you will not be getting sick again, my friend. You just have a little frog. Yeah. So I apologize for my vocal stylings today. Later in the show, we have a great show, a lot of great news for justice today. Some really good stuff happened. I'll be talking with Megan Hatcher Mays. She works at Indivisible. She's the director of democracy there. And we're going to discuss the Supreme Court nomination and how that's going to go and what it might look like and what we can expect. And uh, also, I wanted to thank you, Dana, for sharing T's story yesterday. Are you kidding me? I want to thank you for giving me this space to do that. The feedback and the comments from a Beans listeners have been so touching and connective. And I'm just so grateful. It's, you know, these times like this, I, my days, you know, ebb and flow in sadness and, and joy and sometimes anger. But reading all of the comments, it just really filled my heart up. Thank you for being a space for that. Thank you for welcoming and celebrating her life. She was an angel. And uh, that that voice and that accent. Ugh. Yeah. And when you see, you know, when you prepped us and said, you know, she her voice is important. I was like, I, you know, figuratively, I was thinking figuratively, but literally her voice is like a song. It's it was amazing. my favorite. And then, of course, you know, when we had a couple of drinks, it'd get real, real thick, real, real sick <laughs> Georgia accent where T's like, you want to go get some bowl peanuts? Wait, what? <laughs> some bowl peanuts. We'll go get some bowl peanuts. Yep. Let's go get some boiled peanuts, T. Let's do that. <laughs> yeah, I miss That's her so terribly. Amazing. What a what an incredible story. Yeah, thank yeah. you everyone. Thank you. Yeah, and thank you for sharing. All right, we do have some interesting news to get to and some good news. So let's do it. Let's hit the hot notes. Hot notes. All right, we have another filing in the John Durham case. This one is from Michael Sussman's side. If you're not familiar with those names, quick review. Bill Barr appointed John Durham to investigate the oranges of the Trump-Russia investigation. I don't think he had authority to do it anyway, because a special counsel can't come from inside the government. And Durham was uh, a U.S. attorney. But, you know, whatever. (laughs) Last September, a few minutes before the statute of limitations was about to expire, Durham indicted Michael Sussman for 1001, 18 U.S. Code 1001, lying per, you know. And basically what happened was Sussman is the guy who alerted the FBI, Jim Baker at the FBI, to the Trump Tower DNS server, DNS traffic that was communicating with Alpha Bank in Russia. Kind of an important thing to probably look at. Now, Durham alleged that Sussman lied to the FBI general counsel, Jim Baker, but didn't actually spell out what the lie was, like what he said that was a lie, which is usually a good thing to put if you're accusing someone of lying. (laughs) 
But apparently it has something to do with the fact that Sussman told Jim Baker allegedly that he was not there on behalf of the Clinton campaign. But he wasn't, by the way, and he didn't build a Clinton campaign for those hours. And everybody knew he worked for the Clinton campaign. And so it wasn't a secret. And Jim Baker has testified under oath to Congress that he doesn't remember if Sussman said that or not. So so that's the only witness to the entire conversation. It's a bullshit indictment. And there's no materiality either because it didn't make a difference the way, you know, to how the FBI looked into the issue. Right. Like if 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 what the lie said made the FBI do something different with how they were going to look into it, then maybe it's material. Sure, maybe. Not really. And and his indictment was like, look, the FBI might have. They could have possibly. It's like you, you really need to show that materiality. You can't just say it might have been material. Anyway, now, a minute before the statute of limitations was about to expire on another meeting Sussman had with the CIA about the same thing, Durham filed an inflammatory bullshit motion, which is what everybody is talking about this weekend and calling it the, the Durham report. It's not a report. It's a motion <laughs> filed in court asking the court to inquire into conflicts of interest because apparently a lawyer who used to work at the giant law firm representing Sussman now works for the Department of Justice. But that lawyer's already recused himself from anything to have to do with the case. They didn't have anything to do with the case anyway. And it's not one of the three lawyers representing Sussman. And Durham, of course, failed to mention that there is no conflict of interest because they've already agreed to waive any conflicts of interest between the parties. So Andrew Torres and I go into that filing in a lot more depth on today's episode of Clean Up on Aisle 45. So check that out. And because the reason I, I want to go over this today is because Sussman's lawyer has filed a great response to Durham's filing. The filing that Durham put in that we go over on Cleanup on All 45. Now there's a response. We didn't have that response when we recorded the episode of Cleanup. So I wanted to go over it briefly here. And it basically goes like this. All right. We'll reply to your your motion. Uh, first, since we already said we'd waive any conflict of interest, it's totally unnecessary to file for a waiver on record. But whatever. If you want it here, it's on record. We waive them. Second, instead of filing a simple conflict of interest document, Durham decided to file a bunch of false accusations to taint the jury pool and inflame the media. And in that bullshit so-called factual background that Durham put in here, Durham decided to raise DNS traffic allegedly presented to the CIA in 2017, which was not mentioned in the indictment, by the way. There was no indictment for the CIA meeting and for which the statute of limitations had just passed without a charge from Durham. No conspiracy charge, no lying charge, no nothing. Now, that irrelevant, unindicted allegation has nothing to do with the conflict of interest here. So why include it? And then the lawyer says the question answers itself. Durham is ginning up prejudicial media coverage. For example, Durham implies that during Sussman's meeting with the CIA that happened on February 9th, 2017, he gave the EOP data to them. And the EOP data was from after Trump took office. It was white. It was from the Trump White House. But Durham knows full well that the data provided pertained only to a period of time when Obama was in the White House. <laughs> so he knew that, but he sort of om omitted that, but implied that it happened, that it was that that CIA meeting info transfer was Trump White House spying. It wasn't. Durham also alleges that Sussman was acting alongside the Clinton campaign, but the Clinton campaign didn't exist in February of 2017. Right. Why would it? So they could have been working for the Clinton campaign in 2017. Durham also conveniently omitted the fact that the Clinton campaign was never billed for work associated with the February 2019 meeting, which makes sense 
since the Clinton campaign no longer existed. <laughs> yeah. And why Sussman was never indicted for anything associated with the February 9th, 2017 meeting. And Durham continues to allege here that Sussman billed the Clinton campaign for the FBI meeting in September 2016. Interesting, by the way, that the indictment came just under the statute of limitations wire as well. And this is not the first time in the case that, that Durham has sought to include allegations about uncharged conduct in public filings and done so using inflammatory and prejudicial rhetoric. The indictment itself is 27 pages long and reads as though it were a vast conspiracy involving Clinton, the Clinton campaign, Michael Sussman, and to defraud the FBI into investigating Donald Trump as part of some October surprise. But the indictment doesn't charge anyone other than Sussman. The indictment doesn't charge a conspiracy. It doesn't charge Hillary. It doesn't charge Perkins Coie. It doesn't charge the FBI. And it doesn't charge fraud. It's just a lying charge. And you weren't even very clear about it. Now, most recently, his 19-page, Durham's 19-page discovery update filed on January 25th, Durham went out of his way to include uncharged and inflammatory allegations. In his filing, which sought an extension to produce certain discovery, the special counsel stretched to include the gratuitous claim that his office had an active ongoing criminal investigation of the defendant's conduct and other matters. However, special counsel has been investigating for years, and some of the special counsel's ongoing investigation seems to be work that should have been completed before indicting Mr. Sussman. Hmm. For example, Durham alleged that Sussman met with the FBI on behalf of the Clinton campaign, but it was not until November 2021 two months after Sussman was indicted, that Durham bothered to interview anyone who worked full-time for the campaign to determine if the allegation was true. <laughs> it is not. It's, it's, it's not. You didn't even fucking check. You just indicted him because you were running out of statute of limitations runway. Mr. Sussman hereby requests the court strike the factual background portion of the special counsel's motion pursuant to the court's inherent power to do that. In addition, Sussman reserves all rights to submit appropriate motions and seek appropriate relief concerning this conduct, Durham's conduct, should the indictment not be dismissed, <laughs> because it probably will be, and should the case proceed to trial, uh, including by seeking extensive voir dire about potential jurors' exposure, right? Like, we, we need to have really good voir dire. If this, if this even bullshit thing goes to trial, if the judge doesn't throw it out and laugh in your fucking face with your stupid beard... <laughs> <laughs> then we're going to really question the fuck out of your jurors because they've been exposed to prejudicial media resulting from Durham's irresponsible actions. I cannot wait to read Sussman's motion to dismiss because I know that that's coming. It's going to be so good. So I know that went on for a little while, but there's a lot of disinformation out there right now. And we have a lot of big accounts who have flipped over to the Durham side and are spreading disinformation about this. And I just wanted everybody to be clear. I've also tweeted these filings, they're six pages and 22 pages, very quick reads. So you can see for yourself and make your own decision. You don't have to take my sort of biased point of view on it. Well done. Well done, my friend. This is a lovely story. A Washington, D.C. judge, they reinstated the Trump organization as a defendant. That's the very most important part of that sentence. As a defendant in a lawsuit brought by the district's attorney general over whether former President Donald Trump misused funds for his 2017 inauguration. He did. He did. Reversing an earlier decision and handing a major loss to Trump as the case heads to trial. So, Whoops. D.C. Attorney General Carl Racine filed the civil lawsuit in January of 2020. He accused the Trump Organization, the Trump International Hotel in D.C., and Trump's 2017 Presidential Inaugural Committee, which is a tax-exempt nonprofit, 
of using tax-free funds to improperly pay the Trump organization and members of the Trump family. (laughs) Yep. In November, D.C. Superior Court Judge Jose Lopez cleaved the Trump organization off the case. Interesting. Ruling that Racine's office didn't bring enough evidence to establish the company may have broken the law. Well, Racine filed a motion for reconsideration later that month. And on December 31st, the case was transferred to a different judge, Yvonne Williams, who ruled Wednesday night that the Trump organization should remain in the case after all. Mm-hmm. She pointed out a ruling, A.G., that Gentry Beach, I just it just amazes me, okay? Gentry Beach. Gentry <laughs> Beach. Yes. A man who the attorney general's office says was acting on behalf of the Trump organization. Well, he appeared to conflate the company and the inaugural committee when booking a block of hotel rooms. We've, I've heard this story. Lawyers for the Trump organization argue that attorney general's office failed to collect any testimony from Beach. But Williams wrote that Lopez erroneously ruled in their favor without first considering whether Racine should be able to issue a subpoena to depose Beach. Mm-hmm. So, yes, our friend Stephanie Winston Wilcott is the lead witness in this case. Yeah, that's what she tweeted. So, because remember when we just, I recently had her on and I was like, what are you doing? Who are you helping? She's like, can't talk about <laughs> it. Can't talk about it. Shush, shush. Uh, anyway, here we go. This is another one, by the way. So now we've got, this is like, I don't know. He's in so much fucking love it. jeopardy. I love it's it. amazing. And Chairman Benny Thompson today announced that as part of the investigation into the January 6th attack in the Capitol, the select committee has issued subpoenas to six individuals who had knowledge or participated in efforts to send false alternate electors for former President Trump in states carried by Biden to the joint session of Congress on January 6th or to otherwise delay or interfere with the certification of the legitimate 2020 election results. Interfere, delay, certification. That's legal language for obstructing an official proceeding. That's straight out of 1512 C2, which, you know, is my favorite thing. Now, the committee is seeking records and testimony from these six individuals. Chairman Thompson says the select committee is looking for information about efforts to send false slates of electors to D.C. and change the outcome of the election. We're seeking records and testimony from former campaign officials and other people in various states who we believe have relevant information about the planning and implementation of those plans. Select committee has heard from more than now 550 witnesses, 550, and we expect these six individuals to cooperate as well as we work to tell the American people the full story about the violence of the January 6th attack and its causes. The select committee issued subpoenas for the following individuals, testimony and records. Michael Roman and Gary Brown, they served respectively as the director and deputy director of Election Day operations for Trump's 2020 reelection campaign. They reportedly participated in efforts to promote allegations of fraud in the November 2020 election and encouraged state legislatures to appoint false alternate slates of electors. Then there's Douglas Mastriano. Uh, He was part of a plan to arrange for alternate slates of electors from Pennsylvania for former President Trump and reportedly spoke with President Trump about post-election activities. Bad dude. Then there's Laura Cox, reportedly witnessed Rudy Giuliani threaten state lawmakers in Michigan to say if they certified for Biden, that would be a criminal act. Oh, that seems not not good. Then we have Mark Fincham dickhead extraordinaire from Arizona. (laughs) He advanced unsubstantiated claims about the election and helped organize an event in Phoenix on November 30th, at which former President Trump legal team and others spoke and advanced unproven claims of election and voter fraud. That was that like banquet hall that they said was a legislative hearing. Mm -hmm. He was also in Washington on January 6th and stated that he had evidence to deliver to Vice President Pence. 
in an effort to postpone the awarding of electors. That right there, that's obstructing an official officer in their duty. That's 20 years. Hmm. I hope he gets it. I hope he gets something. I'm so tired of this shit. (laughs) No, it's going to be a while. And then Kelly Ward, she reportedly spoke to the former president and members of his staff directly about election certification issues in Arizona and acted to transmit documents claiming to be an alternate electoral college person from Arizona. So those six went out. So we have 14. Now we have a total of 20 subpoenas in the seven state conspiracy thing. So. All right. And thank you, A.G. This last story is a twofer. We've had two major settlements today. First, Prince Andrew, he has settled a lawsuit brought by Virginia Jufri, a woman, as we know, who has accused him of raping her when she was a teenage victim of Andrew's friend, the notorious sex offender Jeffrey Epstein. And that's according to a new court filing in Manhattan on Tuesday. The amount that Andrew, 61, will pay Ms. Jufri is confidential, the party said in a joint statement attached to the filing. Andrew also, quote, intends to make a substantial donation to a charity in support of victims' rights and file that under go fuck yourself. I am so, listen, I I want, I understand that that victim had a part in accepting this. I just don't understand why these fucking rapists get to actually make deals instead of going to prison. But my opinion, it's hard to prosecute. I know. It's so hard to prosecute. And if she got millions and millions of dollars. Yes, good. High five. And obviously there's some, some, some omission of guilt in that. Whether you like it or not, but it just he didn't uh, actually say. I know um, he didn't have to say, but yeah, you know what I mean. Yeah, okay, all right. Deep breath on that one. But um, this one, there is no confusion. Families of people killed in the 2012 massacre at Sandy Hook Elementary School in Newtown, Connecticut, said on Tuesday that they had reached a 73 million dollar settlement in their lawsuit against the maker of AR-15 style weapon the gunman used in this attack. Now. The agreement reached with the families of five children and four adults who were killed appears to be the largest such settlement involving a gunmaker and relatives of mass shooting victims. Now, AG, it also represents a significant setback to the firearm industry because the lawsuit, by employing a novel strategy, what it did is it pierced the vast shield, and it's vast, that enshrined in federal law, the protection of these gun companies from litigation. Mm-hmm. So this is huge. In addition to the financial settlement, lawyers for the family said that Remington agreed to release thousands of pages of internal company documents that included possible plans for how to market the weapon used in the massacre. And that's a stipulation that had been a key sticking point during negotiations. So that worked out for the good guys. The families have said that a central aim of the lawsuit was to pry open the industry and expose it to more scrutiny. Mm -hmm. Remington had resisted turning over any internal documents, arguing that the families had not presented a legal justification for seeking them. Again, file that under, you can go fuck yourself. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So yes, this was a big win for survivors of gun violence today. Mm. I know it does not bring anyone back. I know that in a way it does not make up for it, but it is a step in the right direction. And again, hopefully a huge financial settlement to these families and give them a little yeah, bit. And if gun manufacturers can now be yes. legally liable, at least through civil suits like this, with this novel approach that they used. Hell yes. It might change the way they market their guns. I would love it. I would love it. All right. Next up. How will the confirmation process of the first black woman to be nominated to the Supreme Court play out in the Senate? We'll talk to an expert, the director of democracy policy for Indivisible, Megan Hatcher Mays, right after this. Stay with us. After these messages, we'll be right back. 
Hey, everybody, it's AG for The Daily Beans, and today it's brought to you by Helix Sleep. Getting enough sleep is one of the most crucial aspects to good health, good mental health, good physical health, and I love sleeping. It's one of my favorite things. And you know, I had insomnia in the past, tossed and turned all night, night sweats. I thought it was anxiety, but as it turns out, I had a mattress made for someone else. But Helix Sleep saved the day. There's a Helix mattress for every body type and every sleeping style that'll give you the best night's sleep of your life. And you can take the online quiz to find out which mattress that is at helixsleep.com slash dailybeans. You can choose from a wide array of mattresses from soft, medium, and firm. You have body temperature regulating mattresses. They have ones that align your spine and help you be ache and pain-free in the morning. And a Helix Plus mattress for plus-size sleepers. Uh, I was matched with the Helix Midnight because I sleep on my side and uh, like a medium for a mattress. So it's perfect for me. Thanks to Helix, I fall asleep easily. I sleep throughout the night. I don't toss and turn and I wake up feeling refreshed. Now, Helix has over 12,000 five-star reviews and you know that they were awarded number one best overall mattress pick of 2020 by GQ and Wired Magazine. Leading chiropractors and doctors of sleep medicine recommend Helix to improve your sleep. They have a 10-year warranty and you try it out for 100 sleeps, no risk. They have financing options available too. So a great night's sleep is never far away. And right now, Helix is offering up to $200 off all mattress orders and two free pillows. In case you have my pillows, you want to get these instead. And that's for our listeners at helixsleep.com slash dailybeans. That's helix, H-E-L-I-X, sleep.com slash dailybeans for up to $200 off all mattress orders and two free pillows. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. I'm happy to be joined today. Returning guest, Indivisible's Director of Democracy Policy and expert on the Supreme Court and the nomination process. Please welcome Megan Hatcher-Mays. Hi, Megan. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm really excited to talk to you. Ever since Doug Jones was appointed Sherpa of the nomination process for the next SCOTUS, I was like, I got to talk to Megan about this (laughs) because I think you should be the Sherpa. But Doug Jones is cool. Let's talk about this because this process, this nomination process, and we are dangling on the edge of a 50-50 majority here, though I've seen some uh, Republicans in the Senate come forward and say, you know, they're they're not going to gum up this the works here. But, I, you know, I always trust them about as far as I can throw them. <laughs> but, you know, how does this process, how could it differ from or be like the Amy Coney Barrett nomination? And, um, you know, we should also talk about the damage that is being done by the conservative SCOTUS right now. I mean, we've had a conservative SCOTUS for a while now, but let, let's talk about the process. How do you see this playing out? Yeah, well, one way that I'm hoping that it mirrors the Amy Coney Barrett (laughs) nomination is I hope it goes really quickly. So Amy Coney Barrett from kind of start to finish from when she was, her nomination was announced to when she was confirmed was just about 30 days or so. Mm -hmm. So I'm hoping that we get about that same timeline for this person. And hopefully, you know, Joe Biden will announce uh, his nominee sooner rather than later so we can get this person confirmed. The reason that speed is really important is because the Democratic majority is super slim, as slim as it could possibly be. And we know that Mitch McConnell simply will not confirm a Supreme Court justice under a Democratic president. And I know that people might find that hard to believe because he's run up the score pretty significantly uh, on the Supreme Court already. But it's really, really crucial for Democrats to, um, to get this person confirmed as soon as possible. I think folks know that, you know, Ben Ray Lujan, for example, senator from New Mexico, had a health emergency and had to leave the Senate for a while. As long as he's out, we can't get this person confirmed unless we get Republican votes. And it's uh, we just don't know at this point whether or not Republicans will support the eventual nominee. So that's one way I'm hoping it mirrors the Amy Coney Barrett process is that it goes uh, really, really quickly. 
The way it could differ is, uh, you know, I really, we're already seeing this. It's it's really unfair. The nominee hasn't even been announced yet. And she is already facing racist and sexist attacks on her character and her qualifications. And we don't even know who she is yet. <laughs> and so <laughs> that's a big difference, I think, between Amy Coney Barrett and, and this nominee is that Amy Coney Barrett was asked questions like, you know, what's it like to, you know, take your kids to basketball games, you know, really easy softball questions like this. And this woman, this nominee that Biden hasn't even announced yet, you know, is being accused of being too woke or being a a Marxist or being an agent of critical race theory or whatever, all these scary conservative buzzwords that no longer mean anything. Um, So already we're seeing a big difference in how she's being treated and she hasn't even been named yet. Yeah. Radical left means black. Correct. So that's that's where this is already going. Now, I want to ask you really quick, because I know you're an expert on this. We have a really weird, tenuous power sharing agreement where there are tied Mm -hmm. numbers of people in committee. And this has to make it out of the Senate Judiciary Committee. Do you see there being a problem there? No, I don't. uh, Assuming that Democrats are ready to play hardball. And I know that's a big assumption (laughs) on my part. Uh, But if folks remember, um, so when Amy Coney Barrett was uh, nominated, uh, obviously Republicans had control of the Senate. And so they, you know, rammed her confirmation through even after people had already started voting in the November or the 2020 presidential election. But there was a brief moment there where Democrats uh, had denied quorum to the Senate Judiciary Committee. So they just boycotted the hearing and decided not to go. In in theory, um, that that should have halted committee business. But it didn't because Lindsey Graham just said, you know what, we're just going to go ahead anyways. We don't uh, we don't actually have a quorum, but I don't care. It's the Lindsey Graham do whatever you want rule, I guess. So um, There's a possibility that Republicans will refuse to go to these hearings or refuse to go for the committee vote to advance this person's nomination. But if Democrats just kind of follow the Lindsey Graham, do whatever you want rule, it shouldn't be a problem. We should be able to get this person to the floor. The Senate just did this, uh, you know, in 2020. And so they should be able to do it again for this historic nominee. Yeah. And I mean, you know, we can talk about the fact that nominating this woman isn't going to change the balance of the court. It's still going to be a 6-3, excruciatingly mm-hmm. conservative court, which we can't change unless we add seats. And right. so I'm wondering, because now Manchin is piping up saying, well, if it gets too close to the 2022 midterms, <laughs> I wouldn't want to put through an appointment to this so now it's not just the presidential election because the president nominates, you know, that was the the Merrick Garland argument, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, why why they shouldn't uh, even meet with him. But now we've got uh, now, you know, I, I personally think that this one, since it won't change the balance of the court, will probably go through in time. But if we get to a point where we are approaching the midterms and let's say something happens to Thomas or let's say Roberts says, <laughs> fuck this political court, I'm out. <laughs> And retires, which is there is a very slim chance, but it's a non-zero chance, because if I were him, I'd be getting out before Roe gets overturned personally, just for yeah. my own legacy. <laughs> but now we have Manchin saying, I'm not going to now it's midterms because we have to have let the people, I guess, elect the Senate that would confirm a judge. Uh, what? I'm sorry. I'm so I'm just I can't. I'm <laughs> I'm so done with with Joe Manchin. But what do we do? I mean, this is a historic, incredible 
opportunity to nominate the first black woman to the Supreme Court. But again, it doesn't change the balance of the court. So what what do we do? How do you add a seat to the Supreme Court or seats? Because there are, what, 13 uh, circuits. So uh, there should be 13 yeah. justices. But it's not just a matter of the, the president appointing them. It doesn't, I think that has to go through Congress. It does. Yeah. So so folks know it doesn't require a constitutional amendment, at least, which would require, you know, two thirds of the Senate agreeing. So that is good, at least. Um, But there's nothing in the Constitution that sets the Supreme Court at a certain size. And in fact, the Supreme Court has been nine. It's been eight people. It's been six. Um, So the number of justices has absolutely changed over time. And the number that it's set at now, nine, is linked to just like you said, there used to be nine federal circuits, but now there are 13. So why not add four more? But really, the real reason to do it is that, you know, this is not an issue where I think progressives or I personally just have sort of petty grievances with the Supreme Court. These people are um, out of their minds. You know, they they are not making, uh, they're not issuing decisions that are rooted in any sort of genuine reading of the law or the constitution, the decisions that they're putting down on really critical issues like voting rights, you know, abortion, guns, these are all being decided in a way to help Republicans achieve partisan political outcomes. So this is not a situation where, oh, I just have a passing disagreement with, you know, John Roberts on whether or not the VRA should exist. He's he's been trying to gut the VRA since the Reagan administration, and now he finally has the power to do it. You know, Alito's been trying to gut labor unions since he was in private practice, and now he's been able to do it. They're about to, you know, overturn the ability for schools uh, to use affirmative action policies because this has been that's been Clarence Thomas's hobby horse since college. So this is not a situation where it's like, oh, we just have a, a difference in opinion on how on how the law should be interpreted. These people were chosen because they're partisans and because they will help Republicans achieve political outcomes. And so that's what these decisions are are rooted in. It doesn't have anything to do with the law or the Constitution. So that's really why we need to add seats. Yes, in theory, you could impeach conservative justices for behaving badly. But the way you impeach a Supreme Court justice is the same way you impeach a president. There's really very low chance of that happening. So, so we would need to add seats, and you can do it uh, by passing a bill through Congress. There's one pending, actually. It's called the Judiciary Act. It would add four seats to the Supreme Court, and it would allow, if it were to pass this Congress, which, you know, obviously, extremely uphill battle, Joe Biden could nominate and confirm four new Supreme Court justices to the bench. Yeah, and we're staring at the filibuster, which right. is also preventing us from passing voting rights. And, right. and people are betting that if we get rid of the filibuster and pass voting rights that we will hold the Senate, because if we do not and we nuke the filibuster, then the Republicans are going to add four seats to the court. (laughs) But we know Joe Biden will still be president. So we're still like in this kind of tenuous thing. But the whole thing sort of rests on on the filibuster, which is an archaic Senate rule. It's not in the Constitution. So it's a Jim Crow era thing. And uh, it was at least that's when it became very popular to to wield. And so I don't see us being able to add those uh, four seats anytime soon, although it is the right thing to do unless we Mm -hmm. get a couple of Republicans on board to get rid of the filibuster. (laughs) But then then that would just be a probably a carve out for voting rights only and not and not in general to pass legislation based on, you know, for the Supreme Court. No, no, nor would it get out of an 1111 committee. Personally, yeah. I think so. We're we're kind of stuck with this SCOTUS for the time we being. Are. 
And that's why 2016 was so important. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, 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 we are kind of stuck with it for now. But I, I think, you know, every good progressive fight uh, is yeah. difficult, starts out difficult. And so this is definitely not one of those situations where I think most people who care about this issue think, oh, we're definitely going to get this done in the calendar year of 2022. But you have to start somewhere. And the yeah. same was true for gay marriage. And the same was true for lots of other like righteous progressive fights. And so I think this is one of those things yeah. where, uh, and I think that, I think like if there is one silver lining about like the Trump presidency and the way that Mitch McConnell controlled the Senate when he was majority leader, it was that they really overplayed their hand. You know, I think they really took for granted that, you know, the conventional wisdom is that people on the left don't care about the courts. Well, they do now because they, you know, held open that seat for over a year. They confirmed, you know, Brett Kavanaugh, the sort of, you know, drunken buffoon to the court for who even knows why, you know, after being credibly accused of, of sexual assault. And then they um, replaced this sort of beloved figure on the left. They replaced Ruth Bader Ginsburg with Amy Coney Barrett, who, you know, had previously signed on to a letter basically saying that, you know, abortion should be criminalized. And it, just recently, uh, just this term when they were hearing oral arguments on abortion, basically said, you know, it's not that big of a deal if states ban abortion because women can just leave their unwanted children at fire stations without there being any sort of criminal liability for having done so, which of course, you know, whether or not that's true <laughs> in your state still requires you to give birth to, or to carry a pregnancy to term that you do not want just so you can then um, abandon, I don't know. Yeah. Or just, or just go to station. another state. Just go to right. another state, which is a, a violation yeah. of the supremacy clause. So, like, as if it's that easy to just kind of travel across state lines to get reproductive health care. So it's a very, it's very, very scary time for the Supreme Court. You are right that this is going to be very difficult to convince Senate Democrats and to convince even Democratic voters how critically important this is. But this court is poised to; um, they can't hide forever. And I think that's what John Roberts likes to do. He likes to do his nefarious deeds in as much privacy as he can get, but. The people that he's on the bench with now are less interested in that. They want to take credit for all the bad stuff that they do. And the more people pay attention to what's going on at the Supreme Court, the more they're going to want to change it. So I think, you know, we're on the right side of history here trying to add these seats. It's going to be difficult, but it's absolutely um, worth doing. Yeah, d definitely. It's time to start. Yeah. Start pushing that because that's you're right. It takes years to push things to the left. That's how it's done. Mm -hmm. And we've seen it before and we've seen it be successful. I think that the. <laughs> I think that the Republican Party is going to be sad about what they wished for and perhaps get in the summer when Roe is argued. And I'm not talking about SB8. I'm talking about Mississippi. Mm -hmm. And we're going to be right in the middle leading up to midterms with now that being our issue. It's always sort of been the Republicans issue. Mm -hmm. And now it's and now it's ours. So I, I'm not sure how that will impact historically elections that we lose as incumbents on the in the first midterms. I'm not sure how that will impact that, but I'm sure we will see. Now, before I let you go, let's just talk about the historic nature of the nomination of a black woman mm -hmm. and how we can guard against these racist attacks that she is going to be subject to during the nomination process and how her being on the court even though it doesn't change the balance, we'll move it to the left. Yeah, it will. Well, it's it's just 
it, it's so exciting. It's like, it's, first of all, it's so exciting to be excited about something that's happening I know. <laughs> in, in the Senate. Uh, and this is probably the first, this absolutely is the first Supreme Court nomination I've worked on where I want the person to be confirmed <laughs> to the court <laughs> and I'm not fighting their confirmation uh, to the bench. So it, it's really exciting. I think, I hope that people are feeling a sense of excitement about this. This is well past due to have a black woman on the Supreme Court. And it's going to be so, so important for so many people to have somebody who represents their interests sitting on the bench, because a lot of the stuff we've been talking about here, the negative outcomes from these Supreme Court decisions disproportionately impact black people, people of color, women of color and black women. So to have a black woman on the bench right away will just be so meaningful, even though, you know, she's outnumbered, obviously. It'll be really important to have that perspective on the bench, especially if Biden ends up picking somebody with a strong civil rights background or a criminal justice reform background. I think that'd be really incredible. So it, it'll go a long way towards making the court more representative of the country as a whole. Um, what I would caution people not to do is to think that this one woman will somehow be able to go in and clean up the mess at the Supreme Court, it's going to take four more justices <laughs> to do that, to really give her the institution that she deserves, really have a Supreme Court that functions properly. We, we would need to continue to add seats, but that shouldn't take away from the fact that this is historic. It's really exciting to witness this happening finally, and to have that perspective on the bench will mean a great deal to millions of, of people. Yeah, agreed. Thank you so much for your insight today. Can you tell everyone where they can find and follow you and support Indivisible? Yes. Well, Indivisible is on Twitter at Indivisible Team. If you want to follow me personally, I'm at Important Megan. I love it. That's where I am on Twitter. (laughs) Awesome. Thank you so much. I appreciate your time today, Megan Hetramaze. Thank you. Everybody stick around. We'll be right back with the good news. Hey, everybody. Today, The Daily Beans is brought to you by Athletic Greens, a health and wellness company specializing in simple daily nutrition that is delicious and awesome and fills up all the gaps in your nutrition. And so when you have a hectic schedule like I do, or when you intermittently fast like me or you're paleo like me, it can be difficult to maintain healthy habits to get all the vitamins and minerals and stuff that you need. Uh, The solution for me, simple, simple. It's Athletic Greens. One delicious scoop of AG1 provides comprehensive and convenient daily nutrition. It has 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food ingredients, including a multivitamin, a multimineral, probiotics, a green superfood blend, and more. I take it first thing in the morning before I go to the gym, and it helps me be more focused and productive all day long. It gives me energy, and it features tasty ingredients in AG1. It's so delicious. And they're also bioavailable in one convenient drink, making it an easy substitute. It's an easy habit to start. And it also takes the place of multiple products and pills, right? I used to have like 10 jars and a probiotic and a thing and a superfood and a green, and now it's all in one scoop of AG1. And it fits keto, paleo, vegan, dairy-free, and gluten-free lifestyles. There's less than one gram of sugar in AG1. There's no GMOs, no chemicals, no artificial ingredients, and it's delicious. But what I like the most about AG1 is the science, right? They update their, their formula as the research changes. It's continuously improved based on the latest research, which has resulted in 53 improvements to AG1 in the past decade and counting. I highly recommend AG1. And to make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you an immune-supporting free one-year supply of vitamin D, free, and five free travel packs with your first purchase when you visit athleticgreens.com slash dailybeans today. And once again, simply visit athleticgreens.com slash dailybeans to take control of your health and give AG1 a try. You'll be glad you did. All right, welcome back. It's time for the good news. Well, we're blown on. 
And if you have any good news, confessions, corrections, what the mutt, idioms, shared swears, shit kids say, shit parents say, <laughs> any whoopee <laughs> stories or lovey stories, or if you want to tell us what you're crafting, I would love to see and hear all about that. And I know, Dana, you would too. I would indeed. That brings me great joy. Uh, me as well. And again, just a reminder, pet tax and other pictures and the good news are available to patrons and supercast subscribers. Again, thank you all. You make it possible to not be on Spotify. First up, I'm going to grab these first two. Well, do it. Yeah, let's do it. This is Logan. No pronouns. Thank you so much for sharing T's story. I was late to work because I had to pull over and have a good cry, but it was worth it. I don't often get to hear a fellow queer person with a rich Southern accent like hers. So that was a delight for this Southern gay boy. But even more than that, she was clearly a beautiful soul. I'm sorry for your loss, Dana, but what a gift to have known her even for a time. Thank you so much for the much needed inspiration to spread love and comfort in the world. Thank you, Logan. That one already got me teary. Me too. I'm glad you're taking the second one too. <laughs> yeah, but give me a second to recover. <sighs> James pronouns he and him. The 3D printed pride dinosaurs from Friday's Good News segment were great. I wear a pride dinosaur every day. A bilociraptor. Yes. <laughs> from Neutronic Sphinx on Etsy. I figured out I was bi in 1992. The first person I came out to was my partner of the time and still partner celebrating 30 years this year. But after that, I was only out to a very few people. However, when Trump was elected in 2016, I realized this was going to be a disaster for LGBTQ plus people and of the subpopulations of the LGBT plus community. A cis white guy like me was in a good position to improve queer visibility. Nice. I came out to all my friends and family that November and started wearing bi pride paraphernalia ever since. The bi Raptor is my favorite, though I only know a few people who have commented on it and then only to ask what kind of Pokemon it is. <laughs> the pin, of course, doesn't qualify as something I've made. But photo two is a quilt my partner and I made several years back. Photo three is Grendel, the main coon, helping with the quilt. Oh, goodness. Look how cute oh. that pin is. I love the Bilociraptor. Me too. And that quilt is gorgeous, as oh is my the gosh. cat. I love how it gets so bright inside. I know. And Kitty. Oh, look at the main coon with the pretty green eye. Thank you for that. Thank, thank you, you thank you for kicking us off with both of these stories. All right, this is from Teresa Pronoun. She and her. Hi, Beans team. I have what the mutt for you as well as a whoopee for to share. The first pick is the whoopee. It's my lion that I've had since I was a baby and adore it. Since I've gotten older, my mom has gifted me two additional lions that are basically the exact same, but in significantly better condition. Thankfully, my partner is accepting of these three stuffed lions and has allowed me to display them proudly in our bedroom. I had the original for 29 years, and I love it despite the bald spots and small holes. Mm -hmm. In the picture, you can see the nose is mostly gone, and the mane is matted, but it's still my favorite cuddly buddy. What the Mutt submission. Below, also a picture of Duck, my dog. She's six months old puppy, and I've been waiting to get her DNA results back from the test we did. A hint. The vet estimates her to be around 50 pounds full size, if that helps. Ooh. She's a spectrum of dogs, including various breeds of street dogs. But I have listed the top four breeds below, not pictured, white markings on her feet. Mm. I'd also like to shout out the foundation that we adopted her from. She was born in Aruba on the street and was delivered to a kill shelter before the Aruba Relief Foundation, ARF, Arf. that's coincidence, rescued her litter and had them fostered and adopted in the U.S. They have them checked and start the vaccination and spayed neutering process 
for all their dogs. Now, they work with foster homes in the U.S. until they find suitable people to adopt. They accept donations all the time and appear to take great care of the cats and dogs they rescue. They are a great foundation that provides loving homes for the dogs and would otherwise be left to fend for themselves on the street or put down to kill in the shelters in Aruba. Look at this lion. The Whoopi is so good. I love these Whoopies. That dog is adorable. Okay. That's a huge dog. I say there's lab and pity in there. I say lab and healer and chow chow (laughs) and pibble and great dane Ooh, great dane 50 pound okay maybe mastiff but could be great dane okay what do we have here chihuahua stop it uh a seguigo italiano man we suck at this peruvian inca orchid who the fuck are these these aren't dogs these are flowers lady just kidding Boer Bowl. What in the hell? Okay, so an orchid, an Italiano, a Chihuahua, a b- but bo- poodle to Great Dane. Great Dane. Da, da, da. Uh, I take it as a win, <laughs> even if it's point oh two five percent. Ag gets a point for Great Dane. For Great Dane. That's nineteen, twenty, twenty-one, twenty-two, twenty-three breeds, I'm including three I've never heard of. That's amazing. amazing. Well, beautiful dog. Indeed, Teresa. Thank you for the story, the Wooby, the pictures, all of it. Yes, thank you for that submission. All right, next up from Polly, pronouns she, her, beans, coins. Have I got some good news for you? Give it to us. My husband and I received the most excellent, the most wonderful, the raddest Valentine's gift imaginable. Today, we received a letter from the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services. That letter informed us that hubby's petition to the U.S. federal government to ask ever so politely to let me come home to the U.S. of A. as a permanent resident has been approved. There are more hurdles to pass, but the finish line is in sight. We've been separated since the end of 2019. Border closures in Australia mixed with the anti-immigrant policies of the Cheeto-in-Chief left us stranded. Elections have consequences, people. I've attached a photo of us taken at the end of last year. We are so lucky to be able to meet up for two weeks in Fiji. I I think I remember this. Yep. We planted a bunch of coral in honor of Greg, my late father-in-law, whose life legacy funded a healthy part of our trip. (gasps) For pet tax, I've attached a couple of photos from our unreal Fiji trip. You two are adorbs. Yes. And congratulations. Oh, what a, that's, oh, what good news. I love it. Approved. Thank you, Polly. Indeed. And we're moving on to Patty. We have Polly now Patty. Pronouns she and her. On Saturday, I had the incredible privilege of officiating the wedding of two of the most wonderful men I know. They scheduled the ceremony pretty impulsively, and it was a small affair, just the four of us. We held it on the waterfront at the edge of the San Francisco Bay, and the day was warm with clear blue skies. Everything was perfect. The grooms were unbearably handsome in their tuxes, and there were no dry eyes when they spoke their vows to each other. I wrote the ceremony for them, and I couldn't help thinking about what it took to be able to do this. As I wrote the ceremony for them, I couldn't help thinking about what it took to be able to do this. The court cases, ballot measures, all of the homophobia and hatred, the marches, the protests. And I realized it's been less than a decade since the SCOTUS decision that affirmed marriage equality. It seems incredible to me that there are so many people who care so much about taking happiness away from other people. Mm. And the final part of the ceremony read, by the power vested in me, by the state of California. I know. With love and gratitude for everyone who fought to make this possible, I now pronounce you husbands for life. 
<laughs> Sometimes it takes a while, but love eventually wins. Oh, my goodness. Love and gratitude for everyone who fought to make this possible. So good. That was so beautiful. That was a wonderful way to end. Patty, thank you for that. And congratulations to the grooms. Yes, that was beautifully written too, Patty. Well done. Thank you for sharing that. And thanks to everyone for sending in your good news and your whoobies and your photos of your pets and and your 63 breed dogs. And uh, I I really appreciate it. If you have anything (laughs) you want to send in, you could do it at dailybeanspod.com and click on contact. Dana, do you have any final thoughts? Uh, I don't today. I think I've shared them all and just, just more, just gratitude. I have a lot of gratitude today. So thank you. Awesome. Yes. Thank you. And thanks to everyone. We'll be back tomorrow. Until then, please take care of yourselves. Take care of each other. Take care of the planet and take care of your mental health. I've been AG. And I have been DG. And them's the beans. The Daily Beans is written and executive produced by Allison Gill with additional research and reporting by Dana Goldberg and Amy Carrero. Sound design and editing is by Desiree McFarlane with art and web design by Joel Reeder with Moxie Design Studios. Music for The Daily Beans is written and performed by They Might Be Giants, and the show is a proud member of the MSW Media Network, a collection of creator-owned podcasts dedicated to news, politics, and justice. For more information, please visit mswmedia.com.